0: Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Steve Austin, Washington Editor.
1: And Paul Bonanos, Director of Biopharma Intelligence.
0: On today's pod, a Texas judge has invalidated FDA's approval of abortion pill mifepristone. What's it mean for food and drug law? News and new funds from a trio of VCs. SR1, Canaan and Cure Ventures, and top takeaways from our webinar on the Inflation Reduction Act. Today's podcast is brought to you by BioCentury's 23rd BioEquity Europe Conference. We are expecting record attendance at this year's conference. It will be next month in Dublin, Ireland. Register today to meet 240 CEOs, 200 VCs, and many, many other decision makers from across the global innovation ecosystem at the industry's premier CEO and investor conference. You can visit bioequityeurope.com to learn more. Last week's ruling by Judge Matthew Has Marek of the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas on mifepristone could have broad implications for FDA and drug companies alike. Steve, setting aside the issue of access, what could this decision mean for FDA?
2: Yeah, and by access, you mean access to mifepristone? Yeah. The issue there, and, and one of the things that I think is is concerning in, about this, is that there are a number of ways that the Biden administration and FDA could ensure continued access to mifepristone, but not all of them would address the ways that this ruling could destabilize drug regulation. So over the weekend, I spoke with five lawyers who have served in senior capacities at FDA under Republicans and Democrats, and they say that the most fundamental thing that this decision does is it says that FDA violated the Administrative Procedures Act, which is really the foundation for judicial oversight of administrative decisions. And they said that it does this because FDA's decision to modify adverse event reporting requirements for Mifepristone was, quote, arbitrary and capricious, and therefore violated the APA. That sounds kind of obscure, but the thing is, is that by making that decision, the judge really opened every FDA drug decision second-guessing by any court in the United States. Interestingly, um, this approach has been proposed previously, but experienced FDA lawyers have always said that there's no way a court would ever do it because it would elevate a judge's opinion over the scientific expertise of the FDA, and they wouldn't expect a judge to do that. But that's exactly what happened in Texas. So Steve, what's
0: at risk here then?
2: So I spoke with former FDA Commissioner Mark McClellan. He said the greatest risk in terms of the kinds of drugs that might be affected if this decision is not really decisively overturned is to drugs that are used by healthy people, like contraceptives and vaccines, and also drugs that have been approved on less than ideal data, like cancer drugs that have been approved through accelerated approval. One of the the broader sets of concerns that Eva Temkin, who is a former associate uh, general counsel at FDA, told me is that the judge fundamentally misinterpreted the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act in a number of ways. And the concern she has is that this decision, again, if it's not completely overturned, could provide a playbook for challenging any FDA decision. A lot's going to depend on what the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals does and ultimately the Supreme Court does. Just one example of the way that the judge fundamentally changed interpretation of the the law is that he said that FDA's approval of infopristone was illegal because the label didn't completely match the conditions of the clinical trial. But what Temkin pointed out to me is that that's true for every drug. There's no drug on the market where the label uh, is completely in accord with the conditions of use in the clinical trial. So if that aspect of the uh, ruling were to stand, again, potentially any drug would be subject to second guessing based on cherry-picked safety data or efficacy data it could potentially lead to challenges, not just based on religious grounds, like what's been the basis for the challenge to mifepristone but also on grounds of uh, competitive. Competitors could potentially challenge drugs to try to get them off the market so that they would have um, greater commercial opportunities for their drugs.
0: All right, Steve, you mentioned the Fifth Circuit. You mentioned the Supreme Court. Uh, what's the timing look like here?
2: So. The Texas decision is on hold uh, for a week from last Friday. That gives the uh, Justice Department time to appeal and to ask the Fifth Circuit to to stay the decision while the appeal is being heard. And we'll know within you know five or six days uh, if that happens. The timing for the um, Fifth Circuit to rule is is not certain. We'll see about that, and then um, then there'll be some time that would be required for the. Uh, the Supreme Court to jump in. So this thing could, this thing potentially could drag out for some time.
0: All right. And quickly, Steve, I know there was a second ruling by Judge Thomas Rice in the Eastern District of Washington. Does that have any implications for what we've talked about here?
2: I don't think so. I think it might have implications for FDA's ability to continue to provide access to Mifepristone, but I don't think that it touches on the fundamental issues that were in the Texas ruling that affect this broader issue of the integrity of FDA's regulation of drugs.
0: All right. And Steve's story uh, laying out all these issues uh, is up on our website, biosentry.com. Let's shift gears now. We've seen recent news from three venture funds. And Paul, you spoke to all of them. Tell us about what you've learned. Maybe let's start with SR1. That's the firm that used to be the venture arm of GSK until just a few years ago.
1: That's right. And of course, true. So in their case, uh, their news is actually from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, SR1 closed its second fund since becoming independent. And as you say, it was for decades investing on behalf of GSK. But starting in 2020, it began taking on outside LPs um, in its first fund as a standalone firm. Uh, So they broadened the LP base. They did maintain some ties to GSK. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, but now they've got a new $600 million vehicle that's going toward three areas, as always, company creation, syndicated early stage deals, and then there's some cash for later stage companies as well. And um, I spoke with Simeon George, the CEO. He's been there for a long time, since 2007. And the way he put it to me, you know, strategically, a lot of things are the same. Th- those three things are all things that SR1 used to do. But a lot of things have changed uh, since the separation as well, um, so we had the opportunity to kind of reflect on a, a bit of where they've been and where they're going. And you know, in many ways, it's it's similar to launching a new firm. I mean, it's not from scratch, but they've had to build a lot of new pieces into the organization. So we had a fertile discussion, touching on a few things. First, 2023 and 2020 are very different times for VCs in life sciences. Simeon said, "SR1 has been able to draw on ex- its experiences from." The 2008 financial crisis, to adapt today, he's, he's been there since 2007, so he has a long memory of that. So a few big things. They're modeling in one more private round for each portfolio company with the assumption that the IPO window isn't going to be opened, or at least not wide open. IPOs will be scarce enough that VCs will need more reserves to keep companies going. The way he described it, the, the arc of the science is the same. You're still getting through preclinical stages, early clinical and proof of concept. But the availability of capital from public markets isn't the same. So they're adapting to that. And that's one way that they're doing it. So second, I can tell you GSK had supplied 44% of the cash in fund one, which was the $500 million fund they closed uh, in the fall of 2020. Now that figure is less than 10% from GSK for fund two. So they're, they're drawing on a broader pool of investors. The way Simeon said it, you know, one of the firm's differentiators is that it had always had this relationship with GSK's R&D team, even persisting into its days as a standalone fund. But even with the smaller participation, uh, SR1 still has that. That said, GSK's R&D team has had a leadership change in the past year, uh, Hal Baron leaving and Tony Wood coming in. Uh, they've undergone broad organizational changes at that company, um, selling off consumer health and such. So that relationship is dynamic too. And then um, this is kind of getting back to what I said about it being somewhat like launching a new firm. They never had to market to LPs before a few years ago. They've been in place for decades, but that's a whole new thing, them having to tell their story and create a narrative around what they're doing. And there are more changes. They built a back office that wasn't in place, general counsel, CFO. Uh, They have someone who's effectively like a a CBO in place that connects startups in the portfolio with farmers who might be interested in partnering or doing other kinds of deals. So, you know, the story around that, uh, like I said, where they've been and where they're going, they've really steered the ship into a new place. SR1 has covered quite a bit of ground since separating from GSK.
0: Paul, you also spoke with Kanan about a new fund and Cure Ventures. That's an entirely new firm. Can you tell us about them?
1: Sure, uh, let's go with Kanan first. Um, I spoke with Tim Shannon um, about the life science side of the firm. It's Obviously, it's a hybrid firm, they invest in other kinds of tech, and it all comes from the same fund. But um, the conversation also reflected changes over time. And this is interesting, Canaan's new fund is actually smaller than its last. We haven't seen that very much at all lately. For a long time, it seemed like every new firm was doing its biggest fund yet. And Kanan was actually one of them last time around. They had uh, $800 million for fund 12, and now it's 650 for fund 13. And Tim said this is actually in line with historical funds. Um, It's kind of getting back to the norm, he said. He expects smaller raises for companies at lower valuations. And the firm, which typically acts early, they do a lot of company creation and and early stage investing. They won't have to put in as much to obtain the ownership stakes that uh, they expect. Um, He used the word recalibration to describe it. So maybe this is a reset time. But there is something else too for Canaan. They, they separately raised $200 million um, in a new, an, another entity uh, to put into portfolio companies, regardless of which fund the firm originally invested from. He described it, Tim did, as extra cash to put into startups that are kind of outperforming or emerging as winners. But he acknowledged, and this is similar to what's SR1, what, what Simeon from SR1 said, there will be similar situations where um, companies will need one more round to get to a milestone or some value inflection point. And the presence of this separate reserve of capital will be at times used for that. And it also gave LPs some optionality, um, another way to buy into what Canaan is doing.
0: All right. And Cure Ventures, what are they up to?
1: Yeah, that that's a brand new firm. Um, it's, it's three co-founders who have invested in other firms before. They've got plenty of experience in VC. The person I spoke with was Rich Lim. He spent many years at Omega Funds. There's also David, I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right, David Fallis, F-A-L-L-A-C-E, formerly of TIFF Investment Management and the Alaska Permanent Fund. And then there's Lou Tartaglia coming from Third Rock and 5AM. And they all expect, similar to what some of those firms do, they all expect to be very hands-on investors, creating companies, providing sea level management during the company's early days. And then eventually they'll hand off um, and establish a management team somewhere around the time of the Series A. It's a new firm and it hasn't announced any deals yet. That's coming later this year. So once they start uh, revealing some of their investments, we'll we'll have to see how they're how they're doing it and what might be different. But you know, broad, broadly, the bigger takeaway, just like we've always heard during tougher financial times, uh, the science keeps going. There's still going to be cash to put into good deals. But the firms are making adjustments, how they allocate and what they expect. Um, and you know, looking at these three, that's true at all stages, company creation, relatively early stages, and all the way through to pre-IPO rounds and beyond. And you know, here are good examples of people responding to changing times and making adjustments.
0: All right, thanks for that, Paul. Uh, well, speak, speaking of changing times and changing dynamics, uh, late last month, Biosentry and Putnam. Convened a panel of biopharma innovators to talk about navigating the Inflation Reduction Act. Steve moderated. Uh, You can still tune into this webinar at biocentryira.com. I'd like to bring Steve back in now. He has a report out summing up the top takeaways. And among them, uh, he said a consensus really emerged in the discussion among the folks on the panel and uh let's see here they included scott briggs of putnam katie Cumnock of patient square capital meenakshi dada of sidley austin alex harden of CRISPR therapeutics richard Pops, of course the chairman and ceo of alkermes and camille samuels a partner at venrock and One thing that, Steve, you pointed out, really, they all agreed on was that although the IRA does not mean it's the end times for innovation, but it could very well circumscribe biomedical progress and create sort of a a strange set of incentives that will be bad for patients in the end. It will be bad for society, the innovation ecosystem. You guys covered a ton of ground. One thing I really wanted to zero in on with the time we have left here, Steve, is how the dynamics are going to change between pharmas and small biotechs because of the IRA. What's at play there, Steve?
2: So (laughs) one of the ways, and there are several others, is that because the law creates these revenue cliffs, there's going to be much more pressure to reach peak sales as quickly as possible. And that's going to create a competitive advantage for big pharmas because they have, one, they have much uh, greater marketing resources, and two, and this is probably more important, they have much less expensive capital than small companies that are funded through equity capital. So what uh, Richard Pops, the CEO of Al said is that the IRA creates an arbitrage opportunity for large companies that can put more resources and cheaper capital into a big launch and that are acutely aware of the fixed window of nine years for NDA drugs or 13 years for BLA drugs under the IRA, what Pop said basically is if you're a company and you can deploy more capital early for what he called a square wave launch, you know, when they go straight up, within that period of time, that that drug is worth more to the big pharma than it is to the small biotech. So they'll be able to acquire these drugs. And he said that they're going to become, big pharma is going to become more predatory to take advantage of those arbitrage situations. Cammy Samuels from uh, Venrock, who serves on the boards of several biotechs, uh, she amplified those concerns. She said, yeah, it's gonna give leverage to the big companies who potentially wanna acquire small companies because they can invest in these larger indications quickly and more profitably than the smaller
0: companies can. Steve, what's the likelihood of legal challenges to the IRA at this stage?
2: Well, it's 100% certain that there are gonna be legal challenges to the IRA, and they're not gonna come right now. The companies are kind of waiting, biding their time on that. What was interesting, I thought, in the webinar was Amina Dada from Sidley Austin talked about one of the potential avenues for litigation. She noted that the guidance that CMS recently put out about how it's gonna implement the law allowed for comment, public comment on some of the provisions with some aspects of its guidance, it said are final and are not subject to public comment. And it did that in order to be able to finish it up in time to meet the statutory deadline to get the the law rolling. She said though, that just trying to meet a deadline is not sufficient under the law. It's not a sufficient excuse for preventing interested stakeholders from commenting on provisions and the guidance. And she predicted that companies are going to to sue CMS over that. And if they prevail, that could delay implementation of the law, which would be ironic because the reason that, again, the reason that they're not allowing that public comment is because they wanna speed things along. And she says kind of ironically that that might actually, in the end, uh, backfire and end up slowing implementation. And just to be clear, She emphasized everybody emphasized about litigation. You don't know how it's going to come out. And there's nobody who thinks that in the foreseeable future that the law is going to be completely repealed or replaced.
1: All
0: right. Well, and as I said, you covered a ton of ground. And uh, you can read Steve's analysis of the conversation at biocentry.com. And you can still register to tune into the webinar itself, biocentryira.com. Just quickly before we go, on our sister podcast, The BioCentury Show, Steve spoke with Jennifer Goldsack, CEO of the Digital Medicine Society, discussing the future of digital medicine. She predicts that this is the year that the first digital endpoints will land on drug labels. You can tune into The Biosentry Show wherever you get your podcasts, on our website, and on YouTube, just Go to YouTube, type in The Biocentury Show, and you'll land on that. You can check this out as a podcast. You can check it out in its video format as well. Paul, Steve, thanks for a great conversation. All of Biocentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for Biocentury this week. The group connects science and technology professionals, and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week.